Hey, hey, Boss Reballers. Patty Dominguez here with episode 26 with Mike Michalowicz, author, entrepreneur of three books so far, including The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, The Pumpkin Plan, and Profit First. If you're wondering if your business is truly healthy from a profitability standpoint, or maybe why you aren't as profitable with all the work that you're doing, take a listen to this episode. You'll be very surprised with what you learn from Mike, who is absolutely hysterical. We had so much fun on this show, hearing from him, his perspective, like he actually made things fun. So you'll love it. Definitely visit our show notes at bossresociety.com forward slash show 26 for the download of the show, as well as making sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, because we love hearing from you. Of course, ratings and reviews always welcome, but hitting that subscribe is that first step to being a boss reballer. So we definitely invite you to be a part of our community. Hit us up on Twitter at bossresociety.com. Let us know what you think. And here's the show. Do you believe there is more to your career than waiting for the gold watch in 40 years? Did you know that the average American spends 200 hours a year commuting to a job they probably hate? Does it frost your ass to get a 2% raise that barely keeps up with the rate of inflation? Have you ever worked for a boss hole? We know how you feel, and we want to help. Welcome to the Boss Free Society Podcast, your entertaining entrepreneur therapy session with your hosts, Tim Wambach and Patty Dominguez. Couch not included. Patty, we're back in the studio and we have a phenomenal guest. Yeah, I'm really excited and I'm kind of a groupie and I'll go into that a little bit more. But Tim, why don't you take over and, and introduce our guest? Yeah, we're excited to hear your story, Patty. So you're, I'm on my edge <laughs> of my seat. Uh, by, we are, we're interviewing today on the Boss Free Society podcast, Mike Michalowicz, by his 35th birthday, he had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. Confident that he had the formula for success, he became an angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. Then he started all over again, driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Among other innovative strategies, Mike created the Profit First Formula, a way for businesses to ensure profitability for their very next deposit forward. Mike is now running his third million dollar venture, is a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal, is the former MSNBC business makeover expert, is a popular keynote speaker on an innovative entrepreneurial topics, and is the author of Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which Business Week deemed the Entrepreneur's Cult Classic. Now, Mike's most humbling moment was after losing his fortune, Mike's nine-year-old daughter offered her piggy bank savings to support the family. Mike McCallitz, welcome to the Boss Free Society podcast. Tim, Patty, a big shout out from Cell Block 32. Yes. So Uh, for those of us looking at the video, (laughs) you could or couldn't be in prison. We're not confirming nor denying. Just, <laughs> and this is my, like you know the, the the window that we're going to be pressing knuckles because we can't touch them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I got like tapping. Get me out of here! Get me out of here! So uh, yeah, we were doing some green screen, well, white screen stuff um, before, and I didn't take it down. So uh, I swear I'm not in a cell block as good. much as it looks that way. That's and good. thanks for the intro, by the way. Yes, no, it's a pleasure to have you. And truly, you know, as a mother, the humbling moment 
where your daughter offers up her piggy bank, just kind of close the loop for me. I know your story of what happened a little bit, but I'm going to cue the sad music. If you don't mind telling us about that epic, (laughs) epic failure, what happened in your business, because a lot of times these types of failures are just avoided or cast to the side, or I don't want to talk about it. And you seem to be so amazingly authentic about it. So we'd love to get your kind of story about what has happened to you as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so a lot of people hear the bullet points. He sold multi-million dollar companies. He's a millionaire. Fantastic. <laughs> and it's true. I, I did sell those companies. My second company, I sold to like the uh, Fortune 500, uh, a company called Robert Half International. It's a huge company. They bought my forensics business. And I remember when that check slid across the table and it was in my hand, the only thing at the moment that was bigger than the check was my ego. It was my ego by a long shot. I, I was so full of myself like that. I I was like, oh, I'm God's gift to entrepreneurship. Look at me. And so I thought I'd figured out the formula to success and it was pump and dump, which means grow a company as fast as you can, sell it and do Mm -hmm. that over and over. And you are like a rocking and rolling. So I said, I'm going to do this on a big scale now. Now I have this money. I'm going to become an angel investor. Uh, I'm going to start all these little businesses and uh, I'm going to get like uber, uber rich. Well, I now call myself the angel of death because <laughs> uh, I, su- I, mean, I sucked at it. I sucked at it. I lost all that money, and within two years, I uh, lost everything. And I remember coming home to my family because I'd been lying to them by omission. I hadn't said a mm-hmm. word about this. I came home to my family. I couldn't deny it anymore. I, I didn't have the money to pay taxes. And I came home, and I just opened the door, and I start crying and sobbing, and I was ashamed. And my wife and my children were all there, and I sat them down at the – actually, they sat me down. I was like all uh, – but they sat me down at the table, and we started talking about what was going on. And I, I told them I lost everything. I, effectively, I told them I stole everything. I mean I didn't do anything illegal, but I, I was just spending the money wastefully. I had no understanding of financial discipline. And then I started telling them that everything we have, our house is gone, the car – everything is gone. We got to start over again. We got to start renting uh, wherever we can afford. And my daughter, nine years old at the time, ran out of the room. And I, I remember, I'm like, oh my God, she is terrified. I want to do the same thing. I want to run away. Like, that's the solution. But she wasn't running away. She came back with her piggy bank and she put it down in front of me and she's like, she says, Daddy, I'm going to help us. Ugh, that's so she's amazing. Like, yeah. Oh, Here come the waterworks, uh, everyone. Yeah, yeah. And look, I'm getting chill. I'm getting <laughs> I know. It, uh, it does know. give you chills because it's such an authentic moment to say. And, and I just, I look at children and they're just so hopeful no matter what, right? And I think that's what's so beautiful about it. And I just, I love that. I mean, I saw that on your homepage. I'm like, oh, we got to talk about it. Or I don't know, just because I'm a softie, I'm a mom. But I just think that's such a poignant moment. Yeah, I, I think we all go through that. I think that's just my version of all of our stories where we have right. these catastrophic financial or personal moments. The funny thing, and I didn't write about this, or I've never even really talked about it. The funny thing is my daughter is now a teenager. She's 16. So this is, you know, six, seven years ago. And I tell her, I go, her name's Adela. I go, Adela, do you remember that day? It was such a big day where you put the piggy bank in front of me. She's like, no, don't remember. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like, that was like a life changing moment. And then I realized one person's perception of life changing for another is just instinct. Right. For her, that's just that's just what you do. It wasn't yeah. like thought. 
So it's funny, like there's these, these paths in lives that people take and actions they take because that's, that's just how, who they are and the impact they can have on others is huge. So it, it, I'm very proudful of that's just how she's wired. Yeah, that's so cool. Here's the thing, as I saw then a TEDx of you that you did in Hoboken, the world's greatest, oh, yeah. the world's greatest, which is really interesting because I, I Googled it. And then there you talk about the fact that being the world's greatest is the world's greatest at whatever is your personal best, right? Now I'm paraphrasing or my interpretation of it. So the fact that you were a person that had such a huge ego and perhaps just all full of like, yeah, I'm the big guy and this and that. And to transition over to somebody that has harnessed what it means to be authentic. Because like I said, I see you on Twitter and you're so engaging. You really thrive in helping entrepreneurs and helping people spread the word. I know that when we, um, when you and I exchanged emails, you were just so gracious. You're like, let me know how I can help. So that guy that you're talking about with the big ego, who is that? Because you're so so completely the opposite. And how did that yeah. happen? Well, he was kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not, I, you know, I didn't want to go there, Mike, but that's what it sounded <laughs> no, like. <laughs> he was, but that, you know, that was a piece of me. It's still part of me, but it, I think it's been burned out of me. Mm. And I, I don't know what, really what triggered it, but it was clearly always there. There was a point where, I was, I've always been comparing myself to others and saying, ooh, he's got, she's got, I need to be better, right? So there's always this internal mental climb. And then in one day, well, I sold two, two companies. So it was actually these two instances. I sell one company. I'm like, whoa, that was great. I sell a second one, and I'm like, there's an affirmation, a confirmation of, of how great I am. And for that moment, I saw myself elevated by others. Mm-hmm. That's where dickishness comes from. <laughs> the, the second... <laughs> I have the audacity to believe I am better than either either of you. That I have a, a feeling that I'm better than anyone on this planet. I am an idiot. I'm a fool. Because none of us are better. We're all on a different continuum of life. So I was just in a certain experiential moment of my life, which for me was a high point financially, but it, it was just an experience. Um, I, I, we're all going through the circle. And, uh, you know, if you walk down the street and you see, someone that's homeless, don't have pity for them. Realize they're just as human as us. They're going through an experience. It may not be an experience we wish upon ourselves. Maybe they don't wish it upon themselves, but it's just as valuable as the woman that makes millions selling a company. No person's better or greater. It's just different experiences. So they all have values when I'm getting uh, to. Everything should be appreciated and um, and we should try to place as little judgment on others as possible. I'm not saying it's, it's doable, it's easy, but that's kind of this realization I've come to. Mm. Right. Now, so what has been that growth process, that trajectory for you? How have you, you know, shied away from the dickishness and, 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 and really turned the corner on being, you know, someone of, of, that's giving value in, in, in such a major way? Well, you know, the financial heart attack did it, losing everything. It's, it's like a smoker. You can tell a smoker you shouldn't smoke. The smoker gets it. Like, you don't need to rub it in the smoker's face anymore. They get it. They know the health risk. But until they have the heart attack, it's very hard to break that habit. So dickishness had become a habit for me. <laughs> Comparing myself to others and trying to be better than others became a habit for me. Uh, subconsciously, I wasn't even aware of it. And even though vocally and verbally, I would never have admitted to it or even understood it. It was, it was, it was part of me. Then 
when money flowed, what I found is money is an amplifier for me of who I am. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when I'm a contributor to, to society, money comes in and becomes a vehicle for me to contribute in a better way. When I am a taker from society, when I have this ego, money comes in, I amplify my ego. It's like, it's like any other addiction, like a drug addiction. When a, a drug addict gets more money, it's not like they all of a sudden become this great servant to society. They become more addicted to drugs. So I had become more addicted to that. The financial heart attack helped. The other part of it, um, which I didn't share too much in my book, but after that day it happened when my daughter gave me that piggy bank moment, I had a revelation that there's got to be a better way and i got to change things. But I didn't like, snap to it. It wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, oh, I got it. <laughs> I, I spent two years uh, suffering from functional depression. It's a, a mild form of depression. But I, I'm not a drinker. I started boozing. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, you know, I'm into health and so forth. No exercise. I was watching TV till like four o'clock in the morning, watching freaking infomercials and stuff. And I, I went through a really, really dark period when they say, when they say, when you hit rock bottom, the only way is up bullshit. When you hit rock bottom, sometimes your face drags along the rocks and stuff down there. <laughs> That's what I went, went through. But you know, but that helped me, that helped me kind of slap myself awake and, um, and, and slowly, but over time, turn it around and, and get into the groove of, of being a contributor, not a taker. So at what point did you kind of start that climb back up and, and figure, okay, I'm a success. I'm a healthy success. And I'm not being, <laughs> I'm not being a douche about it. Yeah. Um, when, so when did I de-douche? When did you de-douche, Mike? <laughs> um, it, it, did start, it did start that day. Um, and, it, and it's a consistent lesson I have to go through. It's not like I'm totally, totally de-douched. Mm. I can feel it building up again in me at times. When I have... Um, just, just two days ago, we had a rocking day at the office. I mean, so much opportunity came in. We closed so much business. I caught myself going, hey, I'm back on top. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Wake up. So it, it, that's why I feel it's never been totally gutted out of me. Like, I wish it has been, but at least I'm so super aware of it. So in that day, I think it was pushed down, but there's this awareness now. And now it's just an ongoing thing. I get more energy out of contributing and giving. I actually have a saying, give to give. I I get more joy and energy out of that than taking. Now, don't perceive me as like a pushover. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'll I'll care for society and I'll do nothing for myself. I realize and appreciate the balance. I I totally intend to continue uh, uh, wealth. I continue, I totally intend to build wealth for my family and support my family. But at the same time, I'm running the parallel of building wealth for my community and my colleagues and my friends and contributing. So I'm much more in check, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if I'll ever be you know, perfect. Yeah, I don't I think out. anybody ever is, right? right? No. Yeah. And that's just human. You, I mean, yeah. just being human. Mother T, that's short for Mother, <laughs> Mother Teresa. Yeah, I got Mother that. T was pretty good at <laughs> She was pretty good at it. <laughs> she knew a thing or two. Yeah. <laughs> so did, were you always someone that was able to um, express themselves through writing? Because obviously you, you wrote three books. Was that something that, um, that you always were good at? Or did you have to, to work at that to... to bring that to the, to the market. Yeah, it's a skill. It's a skill. It took, it takes a lot of effort. I, I actually consider myself, 
I, I, I like my writing. I'm proud of it, but I, it, it, it requires a tremendous amount of effort. So I'm not an efficient writer. I, I hear about people saying, oh, write a book in two days. I'm like, I can't write a paragraph in two days. <laughs> How do you do that? I want that. So um, the, the, the talent or skill I see in myself is that I can write like I speak. And therefore, when people read my books, they often feel like, wow, I feel like I'm in a room with you or there's an arm of my shoulder. You're very approachable. That, but I, I take a lot of effort to do that. Like I, it, I'm writing a new book right now. Uh, I'm on the first chapter. It, uh, writing the 2,000 plus words for the first chapter has taken me cumulatively maybe 20 hours. Oh, I mean, it's wow. taken me a lot of time and it's not even close to done yet. So it, it's, a, it's very laborious for me. But I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. So I want to talk about your books because I've read them all. The first okay. one is The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, where I personally, I was like, wow, as I was sitting and thinking, I'm like, that's an interesting analogy. And you carried it out throughout the entire book, but just not... And I took so many things away from it. I mean, specifically about not freaking out about things when you don't need to. Like, similarly, you're on the mm. toilet. You only have three <laughs> sheets. Right. You go about it. And you problem solve <laughs> in a really creative way, right? So there's yeah. a lot. So I love that whole analogy through it. And the fact that you use that as an analogy and then talked about, for example, the fact that you don't need a business plan, that they're like whatever. So I was like, wow, this guy is like so polarizing. I mean, what kind he's of feedback? Different. Yeah, he's different. different. So yeah. how did the book, I mean, I know it was a success, but were there any learnings that you took specifically about it of how you've seen it change entrepreneurs' businesses or your thinking in terms of then you you writing the pumpkin plan? Which yeah, is yeah. That. Yeah, so that book, that was my freshman year of an author. It's very edgy. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I guess I'm the, I think I'm the cool kid in school only to realize I'm a total nerd, <laughs> but I don't think that. So I'm, I'm using big tough guy words and stuff. What, what the couple of things I did right with, pro, with toilet paper entrepreneur is when I wrote it, I love to read books. I, I'm a constant consumer of books. So I'm, it's in a genre that I love. I looked at all the books I've been reading and said, what's, what's consistent about them? And I noticed that many of them, all of them that I read were academic. It's like a professor speaking. And I said, well, for me to make an impact, I believe that different is better, not that better is better. So I can't write a better academic book if my life depended on it. But I did know I could write a radically different book that will get attention. So that's what I did. I also realized the power of analogy and that when we connect with something that we all have an experience with, it's much easier to translate that story into something we want to learn. So the bathroom experience, everyone's been in the three-sheet moment. Like You're like, oh, Jesus, I got nothing. And we navigate it. You, know, you go through the garbage can or something. Like You find a way through that situation. <laughs> and what I noticed in business is not many people were talking about that reality of business. Most of our business lives, even for the most successful people, is three sheets. You don't have enough resources, not enough contacts, and definitely not enough money. And you got to get by. So you got to root through these unexpected things to find your elements that come together to build a successful business. So those things worked. Um, I also made a lot of mistakes. So, so you know, the, the book is polarizing. Uh, I dropped the F-bomb a lot. Uh, my mother has never touched me in my life, never spanked me. She slapped me. I said, <laughs> she goes, Michael. And she's, like, she's in her 80s. She's she so goes, cool. Michael, what were you doing? Like, no one writes a book like this. <laughs> so I polarized my own mom. Um, I offended a lot of people, 
But at the same time, it's interesting when you polarize, you also can find a community that hasn't been spoken to before. Yes, right. and and they 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 kind of rallied around it. And so what happened was, while I was the kind of the the instigator of the polarization, very quickly I kind of faded away into the distance. And it was the community of the TPEs, people that are embracing that term, that were saying "f you" to the <laughs> academic, uh, very traditional entrepreneur. <laughs> so they built this kind of bumping heads. And what happened is. Because of that, the book, in its category, I mean, kind of took off. Yeah, it, it's it really hit it in a big way because of that polarization. Well, it's almost like you gave people permission to say, "Yeah, we agree with Mike." You know what I mean? And stand for something and and, and push back on on the academia perspective that is yeah. so that everything's a model and theor- and they could theorize and and do all that versus what you're saying is like look man we've all we've all been hit with these situations and i'm going to tell you the truth about it i mean that's what right. i really liked about it so. a lot of people reached out to me and they were proudful i mean literally they'd say i got nothing i'm so psyched i got a real <laughs> shot at this and this is the absolute truth but I think before that, people were like, I, I got to hit the tipping point. I got to make enough context. I got to get those first thousand adopters. Like there was all this formulaic yes. form of success. And Toy Paper Entrepreneur was just saying, listen, you are perfect as you are as an entrepreneur. All those weaknesses you have can be converted into strengths if you just change the spin on it and approach it from a different angle. So brilliant. So then, then the next book was The Pumpkin Plan. And I remember... Um, which, by the way, I mentioned it's him today. I love that in the back of the cover you have um, quotes from Michael Gerber, Guy Kawasaki, Seth Godin, et cetera. Right. And then at the bottom is your mom, who says he's a very handsome young man. So I bet you she was very impressed with this one, right? Did she slap you after this? No, no slap on the second one. So it was funny. I, uh, as I was writing that book, I was out seeking testimonials and uh, – I was inserted into the author space, right? I had enough credibility now that I reached out to Seth Godin and, and those folks, right. and, and they were so kind and endorsed the book. And they're wonderful, but albeit kind of generic expected endorsements. Great book, must read, blah, blah, blah. I go to my mom. I said, Mom, you know, I- I'm looking for endorsements. What do you think about this book? She goes, well, you're a very handsome young man, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's the best endorsement ever for a book. So I put it in there. But, you know, there's kind of a strategy, too, is I want when people discover my books immediately to feel the human side. We all have had our moms lavish us with inappropriate love in awkward situations. (laughs) And I wanted that to to come across that I want people to understand this is not an academic read. I am not a thought leader. None of that. This is just a person who has a different experience than you that wants to share some thoughts. And we're going to, you know, drink a beer together while we talk about it. So here's what's, here's what's really cool. And I'll just kind of close the loop on that. And pumpkin plan. And um, it was really, to me, you gave the analogy of the pumpkin farmers and the ones that do like the one ton pumpkins. And it, it alluded to if everyone's zigging, then you should zag. Right. And you gave yeah. some really great examples of that. Can you kind of go a little bit more into a synopsis of the book for people that have not read it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm kind of the king of contrarianism or whatever the word is. <laughs> contrarianism is uh, basically if everyone's going in one direction, you have more potential success in the other direction is the, the common theme you'll see through all the stuff I write. So in the pumpkin plan, 
what I did was I studied pumpkin farmers and found that the vast majority of pumpkin farmers are ordinary farmers, the, the pumpkins we get for Halloween, these big fields. But there's a small faction uh, that are colossal farmers. They, by the way, prefer to go by lords of the gourds because uh, they're cool <laughs> like that. But uh, those colossal farmers... <laughs> That is, is that for uh, real, though? Yeah, that's for real. That's for real. Isn't that the best? <laughs> that is hysterical. I, I liked how you came up really close to the camera. Yes, oh, the 3D effect. Yeah. Oh, I, know how to, I know how to work these cameras. <laughs> so, uh, in, in, you know, whenever I convey a secret that no one else knows, I do that close-up effect. Except this is going to be on YouTube, and, and we're going to broadcast it out. So it may not be a secret after Oh, this. it may not be so secret. So <laughs> I got the wire all over me. Jesus. So uh, these colossal farmers change the growing strategy just by a little. So I document their process. I'll give you kind of a tip for the big three. First is uh, the, the seed selection itself. Ordinary entrepreneurs, ordinary farmers pick ordinary seeds, cheap and easy is the whole name of the game because you, you have a massive field. Ordinary entrepreneurs follow the cheap and easy path of trying to better their competition. My, you know, my competitor answers the phone in three rings. I'll do it in two. They start now answering in two. I'll answer in one. There's always this kind of better up the competition. Look at their website. I'll, I'll take the best of their website and make mine better. The, the big lesson here is prospects, clients actually can't see better. Like if you and I are staring at the highway of all these cars passing by and one car is going 50, another one's going 60, one's going 65, one's going 70. Yeah. Okay. The 70 one's faster, but these cars are just zinging by. It's hard to distinguish it. Our heads are like this. But if a giraffe goes walking down the highway, all of a sudden our eyes are looking at it. Different uniqueness is what stands out. And it's based upon the, the arena you're in. So if you're playing in the automobile game and there's a giraffe, we'll notice. But if we're at a zoo, giraffes are a dime a dozen. When the car drives through the zoo, then everyone's like, what the hell's going on? And you notice the car. Colossal entrepreneurs understand this key component. Better is not better. Different is better. It's about distinguishing yourself. And when you distinguish yourself, you exploit your inherent idiosyncrasies, what makes you kind of the weirdo on the block and make your business a platform for that. So that was one big lesson. Uh, two more. Um, entre- uh, colossal entrepreneurs uh, use a technique called saturation. I mean, to use a technique called quenching. Colossal farmers, now I'm getting all mixed up. A colossal <laughs> farmer will go to the strong sprout and, and water it, drip feed it water, while the ordinary pumpkin farmer saturates. They use these big systems. Saturation is very intense and very fast. Quenching is very slow but consistent. And quenching results in stratospheric growth where, where uh, this, this uh, saturation process results in ordinary growth. The translation is ordinary entrepreneurs saturate. The old school was go to the networking event, bring more business cards than, than there is uh, paper on the planet, and like you know, stick it in, in everyone's hand. Someone has a donut and like a croissant in their hand. Like you have nowhere to put your card, you jam it in their mouth. Like that was the old school. Today, there's remarketing and retargeting. God forbid, God forbid you are interested in like a, a, a green BMW or something. If you look at it once, every freaking website you go to, that effing green BMW will chase you around. It's so intense, so fast, it brands, it builds brand dissolution. We disconnect. We don't like it. It feels like we're being sold to. Right. Colossal entrepreneurs use quenching. They identify their best customer base, and they constantly drip in front of them, usually through contribution. What you're doing right here is actually a form of 
of quenching. You're, you're contributing to the environment. You're constantly present. It's the best way to form trust and, and build relationships and results inevitably in colossal growth because you come, become a recognized authority, a trusted authority. Uh, third and last thing, because I, I know I'm going heavy on pumpkin plant. No, this is good, though. <laughs> okay. Third one is, uh, or the last one is the, called the vendor well. Ordinary farmers, when they analyze their fields, again, they're just trying to grow as many pumpkins as possible. They look at the surface level. How, how is the health of the, the leaves? Is there blight, meaning disease? And they throw down some chemicals and pesticides. Colossal farmers instead look underground. They literally have these glasses like, like the FBI or something would have, and they look underground <laughs> to see, like radar, the health of the root system because the roots can get to this size. I mean, massive. You can see me through that? There I am. <laughs> uh, that's the critical part of the plant, underground, invisible. Ordinary entrepreneurs work at the surface level. We, we try to network uh, with, with our clients. We try to hang out with our clients are, and that's good. But there's a more effective way. We, we ask our existing clients, give me a referral to someone else you know. It's good. It can sometimes work, but it's not the most effective way. Colossal entrepreneurs do something that's really unique. They ask their best clients, what other vendors are you working with besides me? Now, these aren't competitors, but I used to be in computer technology. It could be the electrician, the, the, the cleaning company, the security company, whatever. And the clients respond by saying, why do you care about my other vendors? And then the colossal entrepreneur will respond and say, if I know who your other vendors are, we can perhaps collaborate and serve you collectively. We can serve you better. And this is where the magic happens. Wow. I'm now working with the cleaning company. I'm the computer guy. I asked the cleaning company, what can I do to serve our mutual client better? They say, you know what? Stop putting your cables across the floor because we can't vacuum over that stuff. Recable the place in a better way. Now we're teaming up to serve our mutual client better. Our mutual client is thrilled. The goal, though, is this. That cleaning company, they're already working with one of my best clients because they introduced me. Chances are they have clones of my best clients, and they become the access point. It's, it's hands yeah. down the most effective way to grow your practice. Yeah, it was wow. so cool I, when, when you gave that example as opposed to what we're really taught or what's customarily heard is um, if you have a good client and they're happy with you, then the practical thing to do is say, hey, since you're really happy with the work that I've done, do you know of anybody else that could use my services? And that's the wrong approach. I thought that that was the one. I was like, wow, that's so cool. That's such a great idea. You're really being of service in the way that you're proposing. Yeah. And the old, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands kind of thing with yeah. our clients. Very ineffective. Because if you think about it from the client's perspective, say you're my client. If I go to you and say, hey, uh, hey, Patty, how's your experience been with me? I, I don't care if even if you've had a bad experience. Chances are you can say it's been fine. It's been good. Because it's socially appropriate to say it's good. If you said, you know, Mike, you kind of suck, you would never say that to my face. Right. So a lot of times our clients don't even speak the truth to us because right. it's socially inappropriate. Then, so you say it was good. Well, the good's the buzzword. That's the buzzword for ask the referral. So you say, <laughs> Mike, Mike, your service is good. I say, Patty, it's fantastic. Do you have any other friends or perhaps even family that could use my service? And cheesy smile, you know, <laughs> ding, ding. Well, it's in that moment where you now feel a sense of obligation to give me a referral. 
but you don't want to because if you give me a referral, that means I'm diluting my attention to you. I can't serve you anymore, Patty. I got to work with someone else now that you referred me to. I'll see you later. And I'm putting a hand to your face. <laughs> so the client says, this is absurd. I'm giving a referral and I'm going to get worse service as a result, less attention. So they usually give a bad, weak referral. And then we, as the vendor, go down this tangential path after a weak prospect or a non-prospect at all while dissing our best client. Asking for a referral rarely is a successful system in generating great prospects, and it can actually cause distance between you and your best client. By doing the vendor well flips that. It actually builds an allegiance to serve your best client even better. Better. So the best clients are thrilled to give these referrals out. That's great. Fabulous. Um, let's let's uh, talk about Profit First now. Um, you know, we've talked about your other books. Profit First, um, a simple system to transform any business from a cash-eating monster to a money-making machine. People want to hear what, 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 what they can do with, uh, with your stuff, Mike. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so continuing that contrarian path, the concept I have there is that we, there is an established belief in profitability, I, and I lived by this, that sales minus expenses equals profit. Right. It is the foundational formula we've all been told. Uh, it's actually been routinized uh, into what's called GAP. GAP stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. This is a global principle, and all businesses live by this. You sell something, you subtract what you expenses you have to incur to sell and grow your business, and whatever's left over is the profit. But here's the absurdity over it. I'm starting to whisper again. Here's the absurdity over this. <laughs> profit comes last in that formula. Profit is a leftover. A leftover. It's absurd. Profit comes at the end of the year. And then, and then when it comes, your accountant says, hey, congratulations. You had the $5,000 on your bottom line. And you're like, where is it? I don't see the money. So profit it's like a, it's a shell game for something that we wait for. And so then the solution becomes, well, if profit hasn't happened yet, clearly I got to sell more because I got to sell enough to supersede my expenses to get a profit. But then as we sell more, our expenses grow at a linear rate. And then we never experience profit. I, I propose in, the, in Profit First a, a new formula of sales minus profit equals expenses. If you're a mathematician, by the way, that's the exact same formula. We're just rotating variables, but behaviorally, it's greatly different. And that's the key to this system. The problem with gap accounting, sales minus expenses equals profit, the problem with it isn't the logic. Logically, it is correct. It is behaviorally wrong. There is a behavioral theorem called Parkinson's theory, and this is how it works. If you get a uh, – here's what it states, so I'll say that first, is that uh, Parkinson's theory states that our demand, it's human nature to expand our demand for something based upon supply. If, if someone serves more food to us, we'll eat more. If someone gives us more time to finish a project, it'll take us longer to finish the project. But my best, my favorite example is a toothpaste tube. You ever get, you get a brand new tube of toothpaste? I'm looking if I can have one. And I'm like, office? why would I have one on my desk? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here we go. You get a brand new tube of toothpaste. You get it here. I'll pretend. You get out your toothbrush. You put this long bead on there. It's a brand new tube of toothpaste after all. You put this long bead on it. You turn the faucet on, you know, so you can get it, some water on there. And then the toothpaste falls in the sink. And you're like, fuck you, toothpaste. I got more of you. You know, you put more on there. And you start, <laughs> I don't know why you're dropping the F-bomb. It's actually. okay. Well, yeah. well two things. Two things. I'm going to call your mom. And <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and, and our rating has now officially changed. 
Oh, is this? Oh, that's true. No worries, Sorry. no worries. We we yeah, we roll it. with it. We roll with it. <laughs> so uh, so you're f bombing the two of you like crazy, and you're and you start brushing your teeth, but you have a brand new tube of toothpaste, so you're like it doesn't matter. Right. The funny thing is when the toothpaste tube is almost empty, like the whole game changes. So true. Now it's like. Oh, there's not much here. You like start bending it over the corner of the sink. You do like these rolling techniques. You're, bi- you're biting on the thing. You're cutting. Like you're doing bizarre things. And now if you can get one little droplet of toothpaste on one little toothpaste toothbrush hair, you're happy. Like all of a sudden you can find a way to brush your entire mouth with one hair of toothpaste. And if you turn that water on and that little doblet of toothpaste falls in a sink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're like looking around. You dive in after it. You're like, I don't care about bacteria. It's good for you. So <laughs> true. So that principle of a toothpaste tube is Parkinson's theory. Our behavior subconsciously and then ultimately consciously adjusts to match supply. We change how we behave radically based upon the supply we observe. Here's the problem with money. When we follow the old formula of sales minus expenses equals profit, what happens is sales come in, that money goes into a bank account. We look at that bank account and say, ooh, I got a nice deposit. I can spend the money. It's a very subconscious behavior, but we feel confident. We, we pay the bills we got paid. We say, oh, we can hire that employee I needed or I can, I can buy that equipment I needed. And the money goes away like so fast. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, my God, what happened to it? Well, in profit first, when that sale comes in, let's just pick a number of $1,000. In the old case, $1,000 came in, you see $1,000, and you say 1000 to spend. In profit first, when that money comes in, the first thing you take is a predetermined percentage for profit. $1,000 comes in, take 10%, maybe 20 maybe 30%. So say 30%. $300 comes out and gets tucked away, hidden away from yourself into a profit account at another bank. Now you don't have $1,000, you have $700. And Parkinson's theory kicks in. Now you're serving up a lower or empty tube of toothpaste. And you look at it and you say, okay, I have 700 to spend. And surprise, surprise, you find a way to bend and navigate and twist your way to run your business off $700. But behind the scenes is 300 bucks. And then next time it's another 300 bucks. And whatever deposit comes in, more and more piles up. This is the pay yourself first principle. This is nothing new. It's the pay yourself first principle Apply it to business. That's the new part. So here's what's really cool about it, because that book came out in the summer of last year, right, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. So when it first came out, I read it because I heard you on a podcast. I'm like, I, I got to get this book. And the thing that I really like the most is the fact that you called people out for their crap, right? Saying people will be at a cocktail, but hey, how's oh, business? Yeah. You know, how's business? And they're just uh, showboating on it. This totally. here are my sales. These are my revenues, this and that. And then you said something that literally changed things for me to say, yeah, but how healthy is your business? <laughs> and that's the truth is that it doesn't matter. And then you also, I think, I don't know if it was on that or another talk that you gave an example of how you can be, you know, multiple seven figures and not be as profitable as a guy that owns a pizza place yep. that is way more profitable because of the profit first process and that they live, they manage their money correctly. I thought that's so powerful in calling people out. And I know that when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I need to get this, like I need to get a profit first professional ASAP, right? Because as a solopreneur, uh, I think it's really powerful to just right out of the gate, starting out with these business principles can be so powerful for your business to get it on the right way. It can be. I, you know, I have a close friend who's a plumber and I have another close friend who owns a cutting edge IT company. 
the plumber is blowing away the cool, savvy, you know, chest-pounding IT company because he is driving profit. And so the, what I see at uh, networking events, and I'm a partic- I have been a participant in this. I hope no longer I am. But I sound like Yoda there. Uh, <laughs> I hope no longer I am. But uh, when I, would, I would go to these networking events, and it was the how big is it? It was like the fisherman contest. Like, yeah. oh, how big is your fish? So you go to these events, and the questions inevitably are, how many employees do you have there? How big is it? What, right. what kind of revenue are you doing? What are the sales like? How big is it? Yep. You know, we're, we're, and, and who cares? I, I know entrepreneurs, and I've experienced it. You know, I had a $7 million company, which sounds, for a small business, that sounds great. Until you realize well, we were barely surviving. Right. I had $7 million of stress. Yes. stress. I had to cover that nut and I had no profit. I am much happier with a business that generates 500000 in revenue or 200000 in revenue or 100000 where I'm taking home 90% of it. Absolutely. Yeah. No Absolutely. So, so the great equalizer, equalizing question is just that. Go to your networking event and next time someone says, how big is your business? You say, well, actually, let me ask you a question. How healthy is your business? That's right. That's, and it's the great equalizer. It shakes everyone up. I, I love it. I hope that's the standard. <laughs> do, yeah. do, do most people know how to answer that question? Though? No. No, that's the unfortunate thing. Right. And I hope that awakens them. That's what I'm trying to slap people into. So when you know, I get the, oh, tell me about your business. How many people you got working there? I said, well, you know, ask me how healthy my business is. And they're like, how healthy? They feel uncomfortable. How, <laughs> how, how healthy is your business? <laughs> I say, it's, you know, we're running about a, a 20% bottom line after owner's pay and all, all that stuff. Hey, how healthy is your business? Um, I got to go now. Uh, and they run out. It, it, it's a scary question to ask. But if you start asking of yourself, It'll change your Paris perspective and it'll put emphasis on profitability and, and fiscal health as opposed to emphasis on growth for growth's sake. Yeah. So we are coming down to the wire. We want to be respectful oh, yeah. of your time, Mike. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the program that you have launched out? Um, I am a participant, not uh, offering the services, but um, I contacted you on LinkedIn last yeah. year. You referred me to somebody. You guys were just starting out the program, but I can give you my full endorsement that it has been so powerful for my business. Profit First Professional Program. So, oh, can you great. Are you working with, with one of our members? I am. Oh, I am. Ask who? Yeah, I'm working with Rebecca Burnack from Office Heads of oh, Evanston, she's Illinois. Awesome. She's amazing. She is awesome. She's awesome and so cool. And she referred me to, to an accountant who I'm working with too. Same principles, same mentality. And it's just, we're all singing off the same page and I just feel so good about it. So thank you for that. But for the benefit of others, can you please tell a little bit about that program, how it works and how somebody can take advantage of that in the, in the next four minutes, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I'll try to do it too. So Profit First Professionals is a organization I formed with a co-founder around the profit first principle. And the the great realization was once people understand this principle, we just shared the basics of it just now, is you can do it on your own to get started. The the challenge is sticking with it and then addressing the nuances. Like how do you address taxes? How do you address this and that? Well, inevitably we go to our accountant or bookkeeper or maybe a business coach and ask for direction saying, what do I do? But those accountants and bookkeepers and, and financial coaches don't have these expertise, they say, I, I don't know. You, I don't know. You're on exactly. your own. So we started an organization to certify accountants, bookkeepers, and financial business coaches on helping clients become more profitable. Rebecca is a great example. Rebecca came on. She became certified about six months ago. Uh, right, We started about six months ago. So right. she was one of the first on board. Yes. Uh, and so she helps businesses become more profitable. 
the best part from the client perspective is now you have a teammate or a trainer, maybe it's a better analogy, you have a, a trainer like at the weight room that's making you go through the exercises, but you're, you're hiring this person anyway. You need a bookkeeper for your business anyway. You need an accountant. So it doesn't cost you more, but now you have someone with this skill set that will help you drive profitability. So what we are doing is we're looking for, uh, I guess, innovative kind of uh, ahead of the curve accountants and bookkeepers to join Profit First Professionals. As of today, we have 77 members. We actually had someone just sign up an hour ago, uh, a brand new member, Cindy Hovick in California, who's now going to be Profit First to Northern California. We're looking for people to do this on a global basis. So uh, yeah, if you're an accountant or bookkeeper or a business coach and you are progressive and you want to help clients be more profitable, we have the tools for that. And if you're an entrepreneur and looking for help, also reach out to Profit First Professionals. We'd love to introduce you to Rebecca or Cindy or one of our 77 members. Excellent. Fabulous, fabulous. So we're at, I guess we're at that, at that time, Patty. Yep. The final question, Mike, Mr. Michalowicz, the uh, no F-bombs on this one. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> he can. So he has you, permission. You, you, we, you, we have you've permission to say, how, answer this question however you see fit. Um, what sage advice can you offer for our boss-free ballers out there uh, something that they can do in the next 24 to 48 hours to help them on their path to being an entrepreneur? Okay. So meaning they haven't started their business yet or they have? Either one. Either one. Either one. All right. So I'll give an answer for both. That's cool. Sure. If they have started their business already, the one actionable tip you can do right now is go to your bank, set up one additional account, and name that account the word profit. Assign a percentage to it. If you've never had profit in your business, then just start off at 1%. If you've run like a 5 or 6% profit at the end of the year, move it to 8 or 9%. Move it up just a little bit. And starting with opening that account, every time there's a deposit, move that percentage to profit first. Move it to that account first and let it sit there. I can't promise you that you'll get rich with this, and I can't even promise you'll stick with it. You may break your own rules, but I can promise you that you'll have confidence that you can improve the profitability of your business, and that you have some control over it. I promise that'll happen immediately. That's the first step. And then once it gets going, uh, you'll call Patty, and, and she'll introduce you to Rebecca. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you don't have a business... <clears throat> The biggest thing I can share is to start it today. You know, there's a certain point of learning that you get to, which is pure saturation. And then the only learning that will accomplish anything is learning through doing. There was a study that blew my mind. They, they found that the younger we are when we start a business, historically, the more success, simply because it gives us more time on the doing learning curve. Now, here's the deal. There's not a single person listening to us right now that's getting younger. We're all getting older. So if you start today, you are younger than you will be tomorrow. And you'll be younger today than you are in three or four days or three or four years. It is to your advantage, even if you're not fully prepared, to start your business today. Mm, I love it. Love it. And he it's said like, it with conviction, too. With conviction and a karate chop. At and he, did, he karate chopped it twice, everybody. He did it on screen. So if you're going to catch the video, I highly suggest because Mike Michalowicz is probably one of the most animated guests we've ever had on. <laughs> I mean, and from a cell block, nonetheless. And from cell block 30, catch him live. <laughs> we'll have it on YouTube. And guys, thank you so much uh, to Mike for all the wisdom, the amazing books that Beautiful. I have enjoyed. We highly recommend them um, to early entrepreneurs. Entrepreneur, yeah. Take a look at Profit First, all the links on Mike, the Profit First program, the books, et cetera, will all be in our show notes. And Mike, you have just been a joy to have on. Thank you Absolutely. again. Thank You're you. You're rock. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right, Mike. Have a good one.
See ya. Thank you for listening to the Boss Free Society podcast. If you want more, connect with us on Facebook at Boss Free Society fan page, Twitter at Boss Free Society, or join our group of other boss-free-minded peeps at the Boss Free Dojo on Facebook. <laughs>